We are in a series of major prophetic end time events that we're calling What's Next with an exclamation point rather than a question mark because we believe that God in his word has spoken and he has not stuttered. He has been emphatic. And we're saying that the first thing to see in this timeline as to where we are relative to end time events is that we find ourselves in the church age. The church age began on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when uh, the Spirit of God descended like a dove in flames of fire, and the church was born. Before Acts 2, there was no church. But at, after Acts 2, we are in a church age that is a time when the church of Jesus Christ is the primary vehicle of blessing to the whole wide world. We have parachurch organizations. We thank God for them, but they are not the primary vehicle of blessing for the world. The church of Jesus Christ is the primary vehicle of blessing in this church age. The church age will end with the rapture of the church, the catching away, resurrecting of believers' graves who've died in Christ during the church age, and then the translation alive of those of us who are alive at the coming of the rapture return of Jesus. The rapture return then kicks off two things, one on heaven and one on earth. The thing kicked off on earth is the seven years of tribulation, a literal time of God outpouring wrath against sin for seven years. The second three and a half years of the seven is called the Great Tribulation because its judgments are even more intense than the first three and a half years. Meanwhile, in heaven, during the seven years while tribulation happens on the earth, in heaven, there will be an evaluation of born-again Christians from the church age as to whether we qualify for reward in the coming kingdom or we don't. It's not a salvation or not salvation evaluation. We are saved, but each of us will stand before Christ and be judged as to our motives, as to our uh, prayerfulness, as to these different things, as to whether the good things that we did are going to find reward from Jesus in the future kingdom or they won't. We've said that Scripture teaches that some people, all believers from the church age will enter the kingdom, but not all believers from the church age will be inheriting the kingdom. We've said there's a differentiation. So we've got church age rapture, on earth tribulation, in heaven, the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. The seven years of tribulation on earth end with the second coming of Christ. I've sought to make a clear distinction between the second coming event and the rapture event. They're separated by seven literal years. Jesus comes in the air, missed by many on earth, that in fact he came. When he comes a second time, he will come right to the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and it'll be no mistake that every eye will be upon him and know that he has come to set up his thousand-year kingdom. After the second coming of Christ, we have this thousand year where Satan is confined to an abyss or a dark pit and is under arrest by Jesus Christ. He's not free to deceive the world anymore for a thousand years. I'm looking forward to that. Thousand years, King Jesus ruling and reigning planet Earth from David's literal throne in Jerusalem. The end of that millennial kingdom, Satan will be released by King Christ for one last attempt to usurp Jesus Christ's authority. And innumerable people from the millennium who didn't trust in a visible ruling and reigning King Jesus will side with Satan to try to take Christ out in a final battle, which Jesus Christ will win by the word of his mouth. No scud missiles, no nuclear warheads, the word of his mouth. And then after that final battle of victory by Jesus, there will be a great white throne judgment when all of the unbelieving, unsaved persons from Adam and Eve's time all the way through human history will come before Judge Jesus uh, one by one. And their sins will be in books, not because Jesus has a poor memory, but because he's going to have evidentiary proof 
that they deserve the level of conscious torment and hell that they're going to get. So if anybody has the audacity to object to King Jesus when they're just about before they're sentenced to hell, Jesus will have a book of all their sins, each one of them, each person, thoughts, words, deeds, that they didn't let Christ's blood cover. They said, I'll go in alone. There is no heaven, there is no Christ. Whatever they said. And then after that sobering, great white throne judgment, earth will have already been incinerated by God's plan, he will create a new heaven and a new earth, an earth free of sin's curse, and forever and ever and ever, and then a few more evers, forever will enjoy the presence of the lamb for sinners slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the only savior of the world, and boy, that'll be something. All the believers from the Old Testament, all the believers from the church age, and all the believers who come to Christ in the tribulation, all the believers in the millennial kingdom, all the believers in Jesus will enjoy forever with Jesus. That's the panorama. This morning, we're going to look at the event that comes after the second coming, the thousand-year millennial kingdom of King Jesus on the earth. I can't possibly preach to you what the Bible says about this kingdom in one sermon, so we're going to have two sermons. If the Lord spares our lives, next Sunday we're going to look at part two of this millennial kingdom uh, study. But let me just say that the millennial kingdom, the ushering in of the literal earthly kingdom of King Jesus on earth is the answer to Jesus' prayer to his father in the model prayer for disciples of Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The millennial kingdom is the answer to Jesus Christ's prayer along those lines. I'm excited to share this with you. Revelation chapter 20 is the principal New Testament passage on um, the coming millennium. And when we jump into the action of Revelation chapter 20, I want to point out some very important things that have just been happening in Revelation chapter 19. So prior to the action of Revelation 20, some things happen prophesied to happen in Revelation chapter 19, namely, one, Jesus Christ will have returned to earth riding a white horse. See verse 11 of chapter 19. Number two, Jesus Christ will have brought his armies of angels and redeemed persons with him. That's verse 14 of chapter 19. Number three, Jesus will come to wage war. That's verse 11 of chapter 19. Number four, Jesus will have carried the visible name King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his person. That's chapter 19, verse 16. This all happened before the action of Verse uh, chapter 20. Five, the battle of Armageddon, that is a battle between the Lord Jesus Christ, the Antichrist, and the false prophet and their armies, will have been decisively won entirely with the power of Jesus Christ's spoken word. That's Revelation 19, 19 through 21. And sixth, both the Antichrist and the false prophet will have been thrown alive into the lake of fire. That's verse 20 of chapter 19. And so when we move from Revelation chapter 19 to Revelation chapter 20, King Jesus is now going to deal with Satan. Since both the Antichrist and the false prophet will have already been put in their place, the lake of fire, in Revelation chapter 19, therefore the next evil one to be dealt with is Satan. 
In this passage I'm going to read, also known as the dragon, also known as the serpent of old, also known as the devil. And right out of the gate in Revelation 20, it describes just how King Jesus Christ will deal with Satan after the battle of Armageddon and before the start of the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Will you notice some things from these three verses? Number one, there will be an angel, there will be a key, there will be an abyss, which is also called a pit of darkness. Let me expand on this abyss by taking you to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 talks about the same pit of darkness that is reserved for Satan with respect to fallen angels who are demons. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, there it is, reserved for judgment. So there will be at the second coming event, at the inauguration of the thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth, there will be an angel, a key, and abyss, which is called a pit of darkness. And according to 2 Peter 2.4, this is a place where sinning angels, also known as demons, are detained and, and sentenced until they are sentenced, rather, and confined to a lake of fire forever. So according to Revelation 20, verse 1, there will be an angel, a key, a dark pit, and a big chain, a big chain. Verses 2 and 3 again of Revelation 20. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. So before the millennium, the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus on earth gets underway, an angel is going to arrest Satan. He's going to bind him with a big chain and then throw Satan into a sealed-up dark pit, an abyss. And this confinement of Satan will last for a thousand years. I can't wait. And this confinement of Satan in an abyss and a dark pit is going to make possible King Jesus Christ's millennial kingdom's ideal future conditions. And during that thousand years, Satan will be totally unable to deceive anyone. Now today, I acknowledge that there are some true born-again Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who deny a literal thousand-year kingdom of Christ coming to earth. They are called amillennial in their beliefs about the nature of Christ's coming kingdom. The prefix a or a means no or without. For example, atypical, abnormal, absent, amoral, asymmetry, etc. So when you understand a born-again brother or sister in Christ who says they are all millennial, it means they do not believe in a millennium. They do not believe there'll be a thousand years when Jesus Christ as king sets up a literal kingdom on the earth. They do not believe that. They're all millennial. They're saved, but they're all millennial. 
And an amillennial Christian believes that there will not be a future literal thousand-year kingdom for Christ on the earth. Instead, they believe that the only kingdom which Jesus will have is the kingdom within each believer's heart. They say Jesus' throne will only be within the hearts of his redeemed persons. That's the amillennial position, but I do not believe it's right. My understanding of the scripture gives me at least six problems with the amillennial, no literal kingdom view. Six problems in my estimation. Number one, the Lord Jesus was not amillennial. Acts chapter one. The scene is after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The scene is after he's peered alive for 40 days. The scene is just before he ascends to heaven. And a very interesting conversation happens just before Christ ascends to the Father's right hand. And in Acts 1, verses 6 and 7, this is what we read. And so, when they had come together, that is his closest disciples, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples were asking, is it now, Lord, that you're going to usher in your thousand-year literal millennial kingdom so Israel can be blessed and have all her covenants fulfilled? Is it now? Now, if Jesus was amillennial, he would have said, oh, I need to correct your view on that. There's not going to be a literal kingdom of God on earth. It's just going to be in your hearts. But Jesus never said that. Instead, after they asked him, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So after the disciples asked, are you going to restore a literal earthly kingdom to Israel now, Lord? He didn't say there won't be one. He said, you're not to know the timing of one. That's very different. I'm not amillennial because I believe the Lord Jesus was not amillennial. Number two, if there is no millennium, then God does not fulfill his covenantal promises which he made to Israel because the majority of the covenantal promises which God made to the Jews have not yet been fulfilled. And God hasn't written them off because they crucified Christ. The majority of God's covenantal promises remain unfulfilled for Jews. They will find their fulfillment in full in this future earthly millennial thousand-year kingdom of Christ. And so if you believe there is no literal kingdom, you believe that God will break and has broken his covenantal promises to Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the new covenant. The third reason I'm not amillennial in my understanding of end times is this. If God does not keep his promises to Israel, then he can also break his promises to the church. And God's not going to break his promises to either. Number four, I'm not amillennial because if there is no literal future kingdom of Messiah on the earth, then many Bible predictions must be spiritualized. That is not taken at face value. Let me just say in the previous number three, there's several verses listed there, Lamentations, Hebrews, Numbers, uh, Romans, so on. Please look those up some point and read them. These are just but a smattering of the Old and New Testament teachings that God is entirely, perfectly, utterly a promise keeper, faithful. 
So back to verse number four. If there's no literal future kingdom of Messiah on the earth, then many Bible predictions must be spiritualized and not taken at face value. Let me give you one example. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 11, although Isaiah's principal readership was ancient Judah, who was about to go into captivity, God looked across the corridors of time and moved his prophet Isaiah to write about the future kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth that we call the millennium. And in Isaiah 11, 6 to 9, this is what Isaiah predicted about the future literal kingdom of Jesus. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand onto the viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Do you see those characteristics in nature right now? Neither do I. Would you put your toddler beside a cobra? Do you see any meat-eating animals that will go off meat to eat vegetables? It hasn't happened yet, friends. But it's going to happen. But if you are amillennial and you believe the only kingdom one can expect is Jesus' rule and reign in your heart and not on earth, you have to spiritualize that in some manner. Now, let me ask you this. Can those characteristics of carnivore animals becoming herbivores and toddlers playing by poisonous snakes and children sticking their hands in poisonous spiders' dens, can that happen in your heart? Uh, no. And if God only meant for those details to be figurative or symbolic or metaphor or allegory, then how were we to know that? After all, here in Isaiah 11, the plain sense makes sense because God started creation. God can heal creation. Number five, the reason I'm not amillennial, if there is no literal kingdom of Christ on earth, then why is the period of 1,000 years mentioned six times in Revelation 20 in the space of seven verses? Why would that be? Let me take you back to Revelation 20. Listen for the occurrences of the 1,000 years, six times in seven verses. And I saw the angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. 
This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over the second death has no power, but will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. If that is not a literal thousand years, why does the Holy Spirit repeat it six times? Because it's a thousand years. Literally. Six. I'm not a millennial. I don't believe that Christ's only kingdom will be in my heart because can I be honest with you? Christ is not continuously on the throne of my heart. My flesh can be on the throne of my heart at any given moment. Maybe you can relate. Let me ask you, what kind of a God king can be part-time on his throne? What kind of a God king can be part-time on his throne? I'll tell you what kind. Only a reactive God king can be shoved off the throne of your heart, although it's his throne. But the God king of the Bible is proactive, not reactive. He's all-powerful. He's not at times weaker than your power or mine. He is ultimate authority, not authority if I grant it to him in my life. The God king of Scripture doesn't have to ask me to get onto the throne that is his in my heart. And so for these reasons, six reasons, with charity and respect, again, to the amillennialist who may be here today or anywhere, these are why I'm not amillennial. I'm premillennial. I believe that before the establishment of a literal thousand-year kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth, where he rules and reigns based on David's literal throne in Jerusalem, you have to have a second coming. All millennials don't think you have to have a second coming for Jesus to be the king of their hearts. They believe in a second coming. And so, just to quickly review, the Bible teaches the following things about the Millennium, the thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth. By the way, some who argue the, the word millennium never appears in the New Testament, neither does the word trinity. But we believe the New Testament and the Old Testament clearly teach that God is a triune God, one God, co-equal, uh, co-eternal in the persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So don't fret that the word millennium doesn't appear in Scripture. It's what theologians have tagged on the fact that's blatant and obvious in the Old and the New Testament prophecies that there'll be a literal thousand-year kingdom of Christ on the earth. We call it the millennium. So what have we seen the Bible teaching about the millennium? Number one, it will be set up by Satan's arrest and a thousand-year incarceration. Number two, it will not be merely a spiritual kingdom found only in believers' hearts. Number three, it will be a literal kingdom of Christ on the earth. Number four, Jesus fully expected that it was coming. He didn't correct his Jewish disciples when they asked when it's going to happen. He didn't say it's not going to happen. He said, 
you're not to know when it's going to happen. Five, the millennium will be a unique time of God keeping all of his promises both to Israel and to the church. A unique time. By the way, while I think of it, there are some handouts here on the platform right by the top of the staircase that look like this. This is a study I've prepared on what the scriptures teach about the millennium. It's very comprehensive, two sides. There's probably hundreds of verses cited here. You could help yourself to a copy. If we run out, you could phone the church office this week and we'll get you a copy for your own personal study. And when you, when you go through this, you'll see there's no possible way that these qual qualities are being fulfilled now. It awaits a future kingdom. Okay, so teaching what I've taught, looking at what we've seen, that we expect a second coming and then a thousand-year literal kingdom of Christ on earth that we call the millennium, what difference does it make? Is this just theory? Is this just uh, unapplicable theology? Is this just something to mark? 45 minutes this Sunday morning? Does it make a difference? Knowing that Christ will set up a kingdom literally, does that make a difference tomorrow for you? Next week? Next month? Does it make a difference? If God spares life and doesn't come back for his church, does this make a difference next year for you? It does seem to me that the reality of a coming millennium should make the following differences for all of us. Number one, that Satan will be on a thousand-year-long tether should remind you that Satan is on a tether now, too. You do realize that anything Satan is permitted to do is because God gives him a certain length of a leash. I have a dog. I walk my dog on a leash. Some people call it a lead. My dog can only get as far from me as the length of that lead or leash. No further. Satan is on a leash that's of a length that God determines. Satan cannot go beyond what God gives him tether and allows him to do. Job chapter 1. Satan comes into God's presence and says, you know this righteous man, Job? He's only righteous, and he only loves you, and he only sacrifices to you because his life is cushy, and, and he's affluent, he's wealthy. Things are going easy for him. But wait until his life is rough. Then he'll deny you and curse your name. God says, you can do anything you want to my servant, Job, but you can't kill him. God says, the leash is this long, Satan. It's that long and no longer. Satan was on a leash in the book of Job, Satan is on a leash today in your life and mine, and Satan will be on a leash. A thousand-year-long leash that confines him to the abyss. That ought to change how we look at life. Number two, even though the millennium is not realized in our hearts, we would do well to enthrone Jesus on the throne of our hearts. That's the call, command of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice. May I interject? Have Jesus on the throne of your heart. It's holy, and it's acceptable. It's reasonable. 
which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Although we do not look to all the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies about the kingdom of God being in our hearts, but rather in a future literal kingdom, we nonetheless should enthrone the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the throne of our individual lives recognizing that the problem with any living sacrifice is it can crawl off the altar at any time. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to enthrone the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of your heart and life? What does it look like to be a living sacrifice voluntarily? It looks like submitting to him. It looks like trusting him. It looks like obeying him. It looks like walking and living in the control of the Holy Spirit. It looks like walking and living governed by the principles of Scripture. Is Scripture the reason for everything you do? Is Scripture the reason for everything you refuse to do? Is Scripture the reason for everything you think? Is Scripture the reason for everything you refuse to think? Is Scripture the reason for everything you speak? Is Scripture the reason for everything you refuse to speak? The third difference that knowing about the kingdom of Christ should make, I think, is that it calls us to interpret the Bible literally unless there is a clear figure of speech found in the Bible. And there are plenty of figures of speech. Matthew 5, 29, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, if your eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Did Jesus mean for you to shove your thumb in the back socket of your eye and pull your eyeball out? No, he didn't mean that because guess what? A one-eyed man can lust after a woman. And then if you took your thumb and poked out your other eye, blind men can lust after a woman. Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using a figure of speech that states an exaggerated truth so that the point will be made. Jesus' point is flee from situations that make you lust after a woman. Buy your milk somewhere else if your milk place sells pornography. Throw your computer in the sea if your computer causes you to lust. Do whatever it takes. Another figure of speech, Psalm 17, verse 8. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of thy wings. Does God the Father have an eye? No, he doesn't. He's a spirit being. He has an eye in the sense that he's aware of everything that's happening on earth and in your life. But that is a anthropomorphism. That's a long word. It means a figure of speech that takes a quality of a human and ascribes it to God so that humans can better understand God. So keep me as the apple of the eye is a metaphor, an anthropomorphism, because God the Father doesn't have an eye. But the same verse goes on, hide me in the shadow of thy wings. God the Father doesn't have wings. It's a figure of speech. It's a zoopomorphism. There's a word for the lunch table tomorrow. 
Zoopomorphism is taking an attribute, a quality of an animal or a bird and ascribing it to God so we better understand God. So we recognize there are figures of speech in the Bible. But we have to sort out what is literal when the plain sense makes good sense. Does the plain sense make good sense? Yeah, then take it literally. Does the plain sense not make good sense that God has a wing and an eyeball and all of that, and you should gouge out your own eyes? Does that make sense? Would that solve the problem? When it doesn't, you know you got a figure of speech. And you've heard me say, you're probably getting tired of hearing me say it. When the plain sense of the Bible makes good sense, seek no other sense or you'll be left with nonsense. Because where do you stop allegorizing? Where do you stop spiritualizing? Where do you stop figure of speeching? Where do you stop? Number four, application, difference it makes that we know about the coming kingdom. Take God's promises made to you in their proper context to the bank. Count on them. You do know that some of the promises of Scripture are not for the church. They're for Israel. So you have to look at the context of the promise you're examining and ask, who was this promised to? There are certain promises of the scriptures that are promised to the nation of Israel. We should be okay with that. Similarly, there are certain promises that are made to the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We have to know the context of the promises. And when you know you've got the right context and you understand the promises for you as a member of the church, then seize it. Count on it. Don't doubt it. And quit seeing yourself as being too unworthy for the promise. Instead, focus on God's faithfulness and grace. It would be a tragedy if we found promises that God has made to us that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, and the church is to seize up these promises, and we would say, it can't apply to me. I just have this besetting sin. Don't focus on you. Focus on God, his faithfulness. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a church promise. Verse 20. For as many as may be the promises of God, in him, Christ, they are yes. Not in you doesn't depend on you or me. We're unfaithful. For as many may be the promises of God, in him, in Christ, they are yes. Wherefore also by him, Christ, is our amen to the glory of God through us. 22. Who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit, capital S, in our hearts as a pledge. When a woman is engaged to be married... There's an engagement ring put on her finger to tell all the other men that she's spoken for. I was on the plane yesterday beside a lovely Bahamian man, and he was coming back from Italy where he's studying his PhD in mathematics. He's getting married next Saturday here in Nassau. His fiance is pledged to marry him. He is pledged to marry his fiance next Saturday. The Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring for you as a Christian that all the promises God has for you as a believer in Jesus Christ will find their fulfillment in Christ. So take promises in proper context made to you. Count on them. Don't doubt them. Quit seeing your own unworthiness. Instead, focus on God's 
faithfulness and God's grace. 2 Timothy, still under this point. 2 Timothy, Paul, writing weeks perhaps before he was beheaded in a prison. His last epistle that the Spirit of God used for him to write in the New Testament says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Promises of God to you as a part of the church taken in context, you can know that he is able to guard what you've entrusted him, that he is able to follow through on the promise you're claiming from him. He's able, but he's more than just able, he's faithful. 2 Timothy 2, 13, if we are faithless, and I interject, we often are. So often we can be faithless. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There are times when I'm faithless. There are times when you're faithless. Christ remains faithful. Your Savior remains faithful. The Holy Spirit is the engagement ring. God is able to deliver his promises to you, and he remains faithful even when you are unfaithful. 1 John 1.9, you know the verse. If we confess, the Greek word is homologeo. Homologeo means to say the same thing. If you say the same thing about your sin, God is faithful, not fickle. You'll never confess sin to God on, when he has a bad day, when he's moody, when he doesn't love you, when he holds a grudge. If you homologeo, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just. Just means he has judicial basis to forgive your sin you're confessing. Jesus paid it all. All to him you owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you know what all means in the Greek? All. To cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So when you rise from a prayer of confession, naming names, agreeing with God, calling a particular sin sin, and you feel guilt, it isn't from God from the enemy of your soul, the accuser of the brethren, the liar, Satan. Thief on the cross. We're here for the crimes we've committed, but this is an innocent man. Jesus, when you enter into your paradise, remember me, saved, forgiven. John 10, last passage, we're seeing that you can take the promises of God that are for the church when they're taken in proper context. You can count on them. You don't doubt them. You quit seeing yourself as being unworthy, and you bank on God's faithfulness. First, or rather, John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus speaking, my sheep, that's you if you're saved, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. Never means never. Never, ever perish. You can't lose your salvation. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Here's the deal. Look here. Jesus' nail-scarred hand is here. And when the Father gave you to Christ for salvation and you were given faith to believe in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior and you exercise that faith and you trusted Christ, then you were placed by the Father into the Son's hand, his nail-scarred hand, and Jesus closed in on you for safety and a grip. That's enough. That's enough. But Jesus also points out figuratively that the hand of the Father who gave you to the Son for salvation is also over you as double security. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, and I know them and they followed me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That includes you. You can't snatch yourself out of the grip of salvation once you're saved. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Keep watching up here. I and the Father are one. we got the figurative hand of the Father, the literal hand of the Son, holding you secure in a salvation. Go to my wrists, go to my elbows, go to my shoulder, go to my neck, and go to my head. They're one. One head. I and the Father are one. So here is the deal, dear Christian. You're a trophy of God's grace. You are in this church age in which we live. You will be before the beam of the judgment seat of Christ. You'll be a trophy of God's grace at the second coming of Christ. You'll be a trophy of God's grace in the literal thousand-year millennial kingdom. And you will be a trophy of God's grace forever. A trophy of God's grace And Jesus in heaven will turn to the angels perhaps and say, see her? She's a trophy of my grace. See him? He's a trophy of my grace. He's here because of my grace. Be encouraged. Be greatly encouraged. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.